Good morning. I'm Jonathan Cross. Our reading is from Galatians 6. Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. All right. I'm uh, Tuck Bartholomew, and it's good to be with you again. I was here about six weeks ago, I think, maybe, in another part of Galatians. And um, I'm the canon for church planning in our diocese, and it's just great to be with you once again and worship with you. So uh, let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we reflect and think on your word uh, this morning, would you, this Christ the King Sunday, would you enable us to honor Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, and help us to know as we think about this text of Scripture how we might pull it into our lives and become a people and individuals that embody it and live it in this world to Jesus' glory, we ask in his name. Uh, amen. So as we've said throughout the service, it's Christ the King Sunday. It's the last day of the Christian year in which the church throughout the world is remembering the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, his being crowned uh, King of Kings. Um, we are remembering that he is the crucified and risen and ascended Lord, and that God has raised him up and given him the name that is above every name. And as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is glory, that he is Lord to the glory of God. He is the one in whom all of the promises of God have come true and are coming true, right? So now, we don't experience the fullness of this, right? We are in the middle of a pandemic, so we are well aware that we're not um, experiencing the fullness of new creation, for sure. Uh, and our lives are very touched by the brokenness. We still uh, sow to the flesh, as we'll think about in just a few moments. But we do believe that the church is a group of individuals who are meant to already be bending the knee to Jesus and already confessing his greatness and his lordship. And this Sunday maps nicely onto an ending for your study of the letter to the Galatians. Because as you've been thinking about all fall, Paul is um, centering the church 
on the person of Jesus. So if you know a little bit about Paul's biography, right, you know that that's not where he started. He started sort of doubling down on the tradition of Judaism, that he was sort of leaning heavily back into the law or into the law himself and believing that Jesus was an, was a, an aberration. He was not the fullness. He was not the Messiah. And so Paul was seeking to stamp out Jesus. But he encounters the risen Lord, and the whole of Paul's life uh, is changed because he encounters Jesus as Lord. And so in this particular letter, Paul is doubling down on the truthfulness of who Jesus is before the church and calling the church over and over again to center its life on the person of Jesus. Now, as we come to the very end of Galatians, in chapter 6, in the verses that we read this morning, Paul begins to talk about and invite us to think about how are we sowing to the truthfulness of that? How are we, or what are we sowing in our lives? Are we sowing to the flesh or to the spirit? Remember the text just prior to this that you looked at last week. Paul speaks of this contrasting way of being human. There's a fleshly way of being human, and there's a spiritual way of being human. We live in a state of struggle, we could say, between these different ways of sorting out everyday life. Now, Paul, in using this language, is thinking about everyone's everyday life, your bodily life. And the question he sets before us is, are you sowing to the Spirit or are you sowing to the flesh? Are you living in this broken way of being human, living a life that is not attached to God, not interested in God, not pursuant of God? And here, he takes this agricultural metaphor or analogy of what farmers do when they sow seed to help us think about just ordinary life. My grandfather was a farmer, and I remember sort of riding on the tractor with him in the fields at time. I remember that process of sowing. Many of us now, and many of certainly my children didn't grow up this way, watching people sow seeds so much. But this is the analogy that Paul picks up to help us to think about the ordinary practices of the Christian life, the habits of our life. Um, and the question he has for us is, essentially, where are you planting your life? In the spiritual truthfulness of who Jesus is or away from him? Are you leaning back into the sort of patterns of the flesh? Or are you leaning forward into the pattern of the life and the spirit? And so bearing the fruit of the spirit, love, patience, kindness, and so on. All of these things, these truths that will sort of this way of being human that will live on into eternity. Why? Because God has raised Jesus up who was crucified and he's given him the highest name. God has said this way of Jesus will last and endure for eternity. And there's a way for us to participate in that reality now through our own earthly lives. The flesh is an inadequate and a false way of being human. So I want you to think about the conversations you had with individuals or friends, or maybe, maybe it was a Zoom call, I don't know. Maybe you were actually in the workplace this week, or you ran into a real neighbor face-to-face. -face. So when you interact in these situations, were there ever a moment where you felt the impulse to defend yourself? Maybe someone said a critical remark in your presence, maybe about yourself. How did you respond in that moment? What welled up for you? I know that very often when I'm in these situations, I feel threatened in a moment like that, and I can very easily double down defending myself in some way. 
Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with someone in which you just gratuitously name drop? <laughs> it had nothing to do with the conversation. It was completely irrelevant, but you mentioned that you knew someone. Or maybe you are foregrounding some dimension of your own status, right? Your accomplishment in some way, or someone that you know, or something that you possess, or some trip that you just took as a way of sort of signifying, I have an identity. We gratuitously do these kinds of things because the human identity is very fragile in a broken world. We view it as a matter of scarcity. We're constantly trying to figure out a way to complete ourselves or a way to sort of um, create an identity that we can share with someone else to say, we've made it, we've got it together. We build a sense of worthiness that requires other people to lose. We live as if we live in this zero-sum game world, a community in which there's not enough to go around. Paul is speaking about those kinds of things. When we do that, we're planting the seeds of our life in the flesh. We're not planting the seeds of our life in the fields of the Spirit. So sowing to the Spirit is a way of living as a child of God. It's a way of being wide awake to God's love for you, of His care for you, of His presence to your life, of His delight in you. It's a way of living wide awake amidst whatever context is going, whatever's going on in the context of your life, whether you're in a moment of joy or sorrow, a moment of sickness or of health, of wealth or of poverty, even in situations which, in which you have been adversely affected by the sins of someone else, because you know that you belong, body and soul, to Jesus who has loved you and given himself for you. And so that's sowing to the Spirit when we lean heavily into those truths and we let it shape the way we show up in the world because we know that we're known by God himself and more than that, that we're deeply loved, that we are his beloved. I was in a conversation with a friend just this weekend. Johnny and I have been, and Corky, we, we were, we've been at um, the, the Synod for the diocese. And it's a funny thing whenever you get in a group, a room full of pastors. The posturing can be quite real at times, right? So we're tempted in this most religious and holy space to, to sow to the flesh, right? It's just what happens, and it happens to you in your everyday life too. But I was with a friend who's a pastor this week, and he uh, was commenting on a recent experience because there had been a change in the leadership of, of his church, and he'd previously been working under someone who was less than gracious. Let's just leave it that way. And he was now working with someone who had a real strong sense of themselves, like they just had no sense to, of, of needing to prove themselves as, as a boss. And so whenever he did something that was good or praiseworthy, they could just acknowledge, wow, that was a great job. You preached a wonderful sermon, or you taught a wonderful lesson, or you did a, a great job in this sort of space of organizing something, and with, without any sense that the compliment of another was diminishing of your own status. He said it's so absolutely liberating to work around someone like that, because why? They were sowing to the Spirit. They were reaping of the sowing of the Spirit, and other people were benefiting from the way they were living life as a child of God. 
Now here, Paul takes this agricultural analogy to help us just think about the habits of our own lives. What do we sow towards? Where do we plant ourselves in this struggle between flesh and spirit? And he offers us two case studies um, in this particular text as he closes down this letter. He speaks on the one hand of our relationships to neighbors who are in need uh, with regard to their own sin or with regard to burdens. But then on the other hand, he speaks also to our relationship to our own life stories, our own selves, if you will. So first, our neighbor's needs. This is in verses 1 and 2. So our neighbor's needs, and here he identifies two types of needs. On the one hand, there's sin, and on the other hand, there's burdens. And I'd like to tease that out just a little bit and think about how these are different situations for our neighbor. Sin, transgression. When we come upon a friend that is caught in transgression or sin, that is some pattern of misdeed, right? Um, Something that obviously conflicts with God's word in some way. This is a neighbor that is sowing his or her life planting his or her life in the habits of the flesh, essentially, if you want to use this language that Paul has been uh, offering us. So when you run into someone like that, what do you do? So you might just begin to call to mind in your own thoughts this morning, what do I do when I encounter someone who's in some hard space of transgressive living, right? How do you react to that person? Paul says that those of you with the Spirit, or who are sowing in the Spirit, we might even say, gently get near that brother or sister, mindful of your own vulnerability as a sinner, too. Paul says that our aim is neither judgment or avoidance. It is to get near in order to restore. And this idea of restoration would be a word that would be commonly used in maybe a fisherman's setting in which the nets, which are valuable to their trade, have been harmed or or sort of mangled in some way. And so you seek to mend them. You seek to restore them. That's how we're meant to relate to someone that is caught or stuck in a place of transgression. We get near them gently in order to restore them. Restoration is the aim, and so the approach is with gentleness, not harshness. And there's humility about our own selves, too, in that space. We're mindful of our own vulnerability to sin. Let me ask you this. When you encounter someone who's in some obvious space of misdeed, of transgression, what is your response, typically, right? Sometimes we're afraid of the sinner, right? Are you concerned to parents when our kids get into circles of people that aren't living in the way that we're trying to teach our kids to live as followers of Jesus, we get afraid, right? Some of you have been afraid, right? I've been afraid for my kids at different times, and we relate to encountering people's sin with fear, with anxiety. We're afraid that, you know, bad company will corrupt the morality of our own children or of our own selves. And so there's a tendency that we have towards avoidance of the sinner. Sometimes we feel disgusted with the sinner, right? Have you ever felt that sense when you've heard a description of some grievous situation that someone is in. Let me just suggest that neither of those responses 
are sowing to the Spirit. St. Augustine said that the best way to know our neighbor is as a fellow sinner. His idea was simply that we are meant to stand alongside of one another in a parallel space. That we stand alongside of one another peer to peer. We are acknowledging that we are also a sinner in need of and receiving grace. The very grace that we're meant to extend to the sinner beside us. So do you have a real sense of what it means in your life to be a transgressor? Right? It's not a popular topic. It's not something we want to spend a lot of time on. But do you have a sense of it? Because when we're together with one another, we're meant to be aware of our real stories. Here are my brick walls. Here are, here are the spaces that are hard for me. Here's what the pattern of sowing to the flesh has looked like in Tuck's life. I'm meant to have a conscious sense of that so that I might be humble when I'm with Johnny or I'm with, you know, Rod, or I'm with whoever, right? I'm, I'm, I'm able to stand beside another human being with humility because I know that my story is broken too. That's the idea that Paul is calling us to here, I believe, to honestly know ourselves as persons that do sin and are vulnerable to sin. A number of years ago, I was with some dear friends, some dear friends of ours, I, I should say, reached out to us to me and to Stacy, my wife, because the husband had recently sort of disclosed to her that he had had an affair. And so it was a terribly sad situation. We'd known that he'd struggled with pornography for a number of years, and we'd sort of honestly talked about many of these things before. But in this moment of betrayal, you can imagine sort of the depth of the wound that was sort of erupting in this family. And so as Stacy and I prepared to sort of go spend time with this couple and to talk to them, because he was still at a place in which he actually just wanted out of the marriage. He really wanted to be with this other woman that he connected with. And so the question that Stacy and I sort of started to linger with as we were preparing to meet with them was, how have we received the grace of Jesus ourselves? What is our story as sinners? Because when we walked into the room, the point for us was not to be avoidant. And the point for us was not to be disgusted. And the point for us was not to be judgy. The point was for us to listen to the story and call them ever so gently and graciously toward a space of restoration. Mend the nets. Do you know yourself as a sinner who has been restored by Jesus? And that's how we're meant to stand alongside of one another. But then there's a second kind of thing that Paul urges us to get near in the body of Christ, and that is the burdens of people, right? People that are burdened by life in some sense. Most commentators think that Paul probably has in mind some sense of financial need because the ancient world was racked with poverty and racked with inequality, and the church reflected those same inequalities, right? Some people had and other people had not. And so there's a sense in which Paul almost certainly has in mind just the kind of burdened life beneath poverty that people would be experiencing. When you encounter someone so burdened, get near them and get beneath their burden. That's what Paul's calling the church to do here. 
But he also means, I think, just the general way in which our world, which is broken and which has been shaped by what? Human beings and cultures that have over and over and over again sown to the flesh. That we've built a world that is not reflective of God's plenty and God's presence. We've built a world of scarcity and we've built a world of tremendous inequality and characterized by deep forms of human selfishness. And that shows up in so many different ways. It shows up in racism. It shows up in sexism. It shows up in ageism. It shows up in, you know, we could just keep going on and on about all the ways in which it shows up. It shows up in natural ways when we encounter sickness and we're in the midst of a pandemic. So we're hyper-conscious of the sort of threat of illness. But it also shows up in the world that we've actually built that burdens our fellow human beings. The spirit-filled persons are called to prioritize getting beneath the burdens of persons that have been adversely impacted by the brokenness of this world. And then Paul says this very interesting thing, that as you do this, you fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, when you get near the burden, you live in a way that Jesus lived in the world towards us. We love as he has loved us. And we express the love that he's brought into the world and you fulfill the law of Christ. That is, you embody the very presence of Christ for those who are burdened. So the Galatian community was a community, as you know by now, that was obsessed with law. And so interestingly here, Paul takes this obsession with law and he redirects it and he redefines it, not in terms of Torah or the Jewish law, the Old Testament scripture, but in terms of Jesus' life himself as the ultimate law. Jesus, who gets beneath our sin and beneath our burdens, when we live the way he lived with one another, we express our connection to Jesus. We live into his own vocation, if you will. There's a sense, I think, in which our life as human beings begin to reflect the kingship that we experience from Jesus, which is not an oppressive kingship, but a kingship that delights to leverage his power for the sake of others. In Philippians 2, what does Paul say? That though he was God, he did not grasp at his godness. Second thing, what about our own stories? This is verses 3 to 5. Our own stories. This is where Paul turns the tables a little bit because up to now he's been talking about the generosity we display toward one another, the call to love one another, the call to bear one another's burdens. And then he says this very odd thing here where he says, go bear your own burden. What does he mean? How do we need to think about this? Paul here, I think, is just continuing this agricultural metaphor and helping us to think about what does it mean for us as individual Christians, as followers of Jesus, to plant our lives truly in this field of the Spirit. We have already touched on this by saying that it's a call to humility about our own vulnerability to sin and our reception of grace. In verses 3 to 5, Paul says... If you think you're something when you're nothing, you deceive yourself. Test your own work 
And then that work, rather than your neighbor's work, will become a cause for pride. For all must carry their own load. And I admit, it sounds very strange on the surface. But remember that in the ancient culture, the way honor and value and a sense of worthiness worked and was achieved and held onto in the Roman world, not totally unlike our own world, by the way, was that you foreground parts of your own story in your life that you want to seek identity in. And you background parts that you'd rather remain hidden. In other words, this was a community that is always sort of jockeying for value. And the way you do that is through these broken patterns of being human. Competition, comparison, critique, and condemnation of your neighbor. And what Paul seems to be calling us away from here is that we would move away from that pattern of being human. And here he invites us to live into the agency that we have been given, that has been restored, that has been mended in our own lives. Some of you may be familiar with a friend of mine. He's a therapist in Philadelphia, a guy named Mike Imlet. He um, has written a number of books, but one of his recent books is called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners. It's a beautiful book that invites us to think about the complexity of our neighbor's life, but also of our own lives, that we're not simply sinners and we're not simply sufferers, that is, people that have been harmed by the sin of others, but we are saints. We belong body and soul to Jesus. And here, I think, the Apostle Paul invites us to live into the saintly part of our identity that is our identity as children of God. He calls the community away from these patterns of honor-seeking that were common in the Roman world and culture, and he says, don't play those games. Stop relating to one another, either from a place of superiority or inferior stance. Neither of these promote real community, but instead, take assessment of your life. Who are you? And who are you specifically as a child of God? When Paul says to bear your own burdens, one of the ways in which I think we're meant to understand that we're tasting the life of the Spirit, becoming a community that is a foretaste of the kingdom of God, is that the church is a place where the voiceless are restored a voice. You find your voice in the church. You find your voice as a human being in the body of Christ. And so here there's a very real sense in which I think what Paul is saying is stop living in the victimage of your past. Rise up. You're a child of God, a saint. Hold on to that identity and find your voice in that space because Jesus has retold your story through his own story. Whatever's going on around you in your life, however you're experiencing the suffering that comes to you because of the sin of others, your greater identity is that you belong body and soul to Jesus, who has loved you. There's a beautiful illustration of this, I think, in James chapter 5. It's familiar to us because it's the passage on healing that comes to us in James chapter 5. And it's a little bit of a strange text because what, what um, James is writing about there in that little space is he says, those of you who are sick, do what? Call the elders to your bedside that they may pray for you. Now think about this in the context of ancient culture. People were terrified 
of illness. They didn't understand medicine the way we understand medicine. Actually, interestingly, the early part of the pandemic, we didn't understand COVID very well. And I remember my reactions in that particular moment were to be like, I can't do anything. I can't leave the house. I lived in Philadelphia at the time. I certainly don't want to ride the subway or get on the trolley car. And on and on and on it went, right? We are just afraid of illness. It was very common in the ancient world. And what that meant is if you were a sick person, you very easily became isolated from the body of Christ. Because you didn't go. You couldn't go. And people didn't want you to go. Have you ever been on an airplane and someone sneezes? I was at the CBS just a couple of weeks ago in, in Charlottesville, and you know, Stacy and I are there, we were picking up something, and I'm, we're, we're wearing our masks, you know, we're trying to think, okay, we're going to the drugstore, that's where sick people are, so we're going to wear our masks. And there was a woman in there who was not wearing a mask, and all of a sudden she started coughing and hacking. And we're like, wear a mask! That was the ancient world writ large. So if you happened to be a sick person, you were very alone. What does James say? You, the sick person, call the elders to your side. You, the sick person, remember your agency. Remember who you are in Christ. You are a part of the body of Christ. So in calling the elders to your side, it's simply a very official way of saying, if the church is forgetting who you are as the, as the person of, you know, who belongs body and soul to Jesus, remind them. The church is a place in which we find our voice and we're restored to our agency. In Jesus, God gets near us in a way that reawakens our lives by the Spirit so that we find value and worth as being a child of God and we start to love as Jesus loves. To plant oneself in the Spirit changes the way you live with your neighbor, the way you relate to their stuckness and sin or the way you relate to their burdens, the burdens of life, however difficult or different they may be from your own. And it changes the way that you begin to live with your own self, your own story, your own burdens, your own sin. Paul urges us to not grow weary in this pattern of being human in Jesus. Because our lives have been woven into the story that God is telling, and there is the promise in certain future that he will raise us up with Jesus, and we will be with him in his heavenly glory. Just as God raised Jesus from the dead, he will raise us from the dead, and we will live in his realm forever and ever. Friends, Jesus is our risen king. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has been given the highest name that there is to have. And he invites us in our moment of waiting to live in his likeness with our neighbor and with ourselves. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that as we think on this text of scripture, that you would help us to be a people that are encouraged by the presence of Jesus in our lives so that would change the way we relate to our neighbor who is stuck in some space of sin or transgression. 
but also our neighbor that is just simply burdened by the world differently than we are. Give us compassion and empathy that we would listen to their stories and we would create space for their voices to be heard. And Father, where we feel like we are voiceless, would you remind us that you've called us to bear our own burdens too, to take very seriously, even when others don't, that you have forgiven us of our sins and you have delivered us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the Son that you love, the kingdom of the Son that you love. So help us, Father, to live in the truthfulness of who we are as followers of Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.